Amen. Thank you to our choir for leading us in worship. So those who have been part of First Baptist Church know that we just finished a lengthy series in the book of Romans just last week. So what are we on to next? We're not going to jump into any lengthy sermon series just yet, but I wanted us to look at the Gospels. So when you spend a lot of time in a letter, it's good to sometimes change it up. Let's look at Jesus himself and his own life and his own ministry. And I thought, what should we talk about on this particular weekend, thinking, praying through it? Um, well, people are thinking about spiritual things, right? Now, I, just so you know, I don't have any issues with Halloween. I know some people here may have a different opinion. Um, I think if you want to dress your kids up and send them to go get candy and meet your neighbors, and I don't see any issue with that, to be fair. But people are thinking about it, and some people do take Halloween very seriously. Um, the background, uh, sort of history of where Halloween came from, um, first, you've got to go back to the ancient Celts, okay? The ancient pre-Christian Celts celebrated a holiday they called Samhain. Uh, it's sometimes pronounced in different ways. But uh, Samhain was a recognition of the turning from the lighter months of the year, the six lighter months of the year, to the six darker months, literally darker in terms of the sun, the winter solstice, beginning this time towards um, the winter. And they believed that during that changing over from light to dark, that the unseen world, the spiritual world, you could say, um, became much closer to the physical world. All right, at that moment, uh, there was a closeness. That was the, that during the year, that would be the day in which there was the closest connection between the physical world and the other world. And so close that they believed you could even move from one to the other. <laughs> so you could move, spiritual beings could move into the physical world on that night, and that phys uh, physical beings could even move necessarily into the spiritual world, and that day was October 31st. All right. Um, now, of course, Roman Catholicism took uh, on a different meaning with this, and they celebrated All Saints Day on November 1st, a recognition of the saints who have gone before us and particularly those who have been martyred, killed for their faith. So the eve before All Saints Day, before Hallows Day, called Hallows Eve, right, which, which we get the English word Halloween, was seen as a time to pray and recognize the souls in purgatory. And which, again, purgatory comes in church tradition. Um, I don't believe in purgatory, just to be clear, but it comes later on in church tradition as a way of purging away the rest of our sins in preparation for heaven. So you can imagine, as people are praying for dead souls in purgatory, and you see this connection, it becomes a very spiritual day where people are thinking about unseen things. Add to that, Dia de los Muertos. Dia de los Muertos, of course, is celebrated beginning on the 31st. That is because the ancient Mexican sort of uh, holiday, a holy day you could call it, was changed over because of Catholicism coming to Mexico. So it's a time in which people are thinking about this. Let's put it that way. So let's look at what does the scripture say about Jesus and how he relates to all spiritual beings. Look with me at Luke 11. Luke 11, we're going to look at really two pericopes, two sections of scripture, but we'll take them together because they're all kind of dealing with the same, they're both kind of dealing with the same subject, how Jesus relates to all spiritual things. Luke 11, starting at verse 14, 
and we'll finish up in verse 26. We'll have it up on the screen. We read this. Now, this is Luke, the author, writing. Now he was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. But some of them said, he casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. While others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided kingdom, a divided household, falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul, and if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest. And finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. This is the word of the Lord. May God add his blessing to the reading, the proclamation, and the application of his word this morning. Maybe you have never read this passage. Maybe you are familiar with it. Maybe you've been kind of scared by this passage, right? Especially that last section there. I hope by the end of this sermon, you'll love this passage. In fact, you may, this may become one of your favorite passages in the Bible. Maybe. I don't know. We'll see. Uh, if, you, if it is, I've done my job well. Here's where we're going. Jesus has all power over spiritual things. Uh, first, 14 to 19, Jesus heals from spiritual evil and its brokenness. 20 to 23, Jesus defeats spiritual evil from the top down. And then that last section, 24 to 26, Jesus replaces spiritual evil with spiritual good. All right, so look at 14 to 19, Jesus heals from spiritual evil. We begin this section by Jesus casting out a demon that was mute. Um, This is not uh, atypical for Jesus' ministry. In fact, many, many parts of his ministry, he's working in a spiritual sense and saving people. Uh, There's never a point, not a single time, in which Jesus encounters a spiritual force or being, a demon, and is unable to cast it out. He has complete power over it at every single step of the way. You might ask, why does there seem to be such a demonic activity going on? It could be because Jesus himself in the flesh is there, and that's sort of causing some issues to happen. But either way, this is not uncommon for Jesus' ministry. This particular spiritual demon is causing the person to be mute. It's causing a physical defect in the person. He's unable to speak. And when Jesus encounters him, removes the demon, the man is able to speak, just like that. And when the people see it, they marvel. 
So that tells you this is not a common occurrence. It's not like this is happening every day, right? This is something unusual. Jesus shows up, sees this man tormented by this physical ailment, and immediately heals him on the spot, and the people are just stunned in wonder at the very sight of it. But some of them, now understand that there's, this is a, there's a parallel passage of this in Matthew. Matthew's telling the same story of Jesus as Luke, as is John, as is Mark. But in um, uh, Matthew's gospel, in his account of this, he says specifically this was the Pharisees. So the, the people that are gathered are marveling, but a particular group, particularly the Pharisees here, accuse him of casting out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. He's using dark magic to do dark magic or something like that. That's what they're kind of saying. Now, you might have been caught up by this name, Beelzebul. Actually, interestingly enough, it's not used very much at all in the Bible or even in much literature of that time. But clearly, in this context, it's a reference to the devil, the prince of demons. Most likely, the name goes back to the first kings, first and second kings, the god of Ekron, Beelzebub. Baal is an ancient word for the Lord, the Lord of a, a certain region, and Zabub means of the flies. He was the Lord of the flies. You guys have read William Golding's book, maybe you read that back in high school or something, or middle school, The Lord of the Flies. Actually, the, um, the, the, the Jewish people, Israel had a way of twisting that name um, and making it a little bit different, in which they called him not Beelzebub, but Beelzebul, Lord of the Dung. All right, that was their mockery of the God of the Philistines. By this time, it means something like Lord of the High Places, Lord of the Realm. And so it's a reference here to the Prince of Demons. So others test him. They keep seeking from him a sign, which I think is ironic because he just did one. I mean, he just took a mute man, healed him on the spot, and now he's able to speak. And they say, show us a sign. Uh, which I think Matthew Henry brings out, that some people will never be convinced no matter how many miracles they see. It's not an issue of proof. It's an issue of the heart. So they just saw a miracle. It's still not enough. Show us another one. And if he did another one, they would say, show us another one and another one, right? They'll never believe it isn't really an issue of the mind. It's an issue of the heart. But verse 17, it says, but he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, every kingdom, divide." he quotes here, Quotes here from Abraham Lincoln, right? Um, no, Abraham Lincoln lived much later. Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a house, divided household falls. Uh, Abraham Lincoln quoted that in a famous speech, you may have heard before, uh, before the Illinois Republican State Convention. He said, a house divided itse- against itself cannot stand. I believe this government cannot endure permanently half slave and half free. I do not expect the union to be dissolved. I do not expect the house to fall but I do expect it will cease to be divided. It will become all one thing or all the other. Taken here from the words of Jesus, a divided house can't fall. What's his point? He's speaking of a general principle. If you have Satan casting out Satan, (laughs) then he's divided against himself. He's got a civil war going on his own kingdom. And he says, verse 19, if I cast out demons by by whom do your sons cast them out? Your sons is probably a reference to people who worked for the Pharisees as sort of exorcists. (laughs) That their job was to go around with certain prayers and try to help people who were demon-possessed. And and perhaps by the mercy of God, they were effective. God used them in a way to actually help people, it seems to be. But he's saying, "If, if that's how you do this, then what about your sons? They're doing the same thing. They'll be 
your judges. All right, let's stop there for just a bit here. Um, Obviously, Jesus is talking about something beyond the mere physical world. Um, There is a absolute presupposition in scripture that the physical world that we live in is not all there is to it, right? There is something beneath the surface, (laughs) if you want to say. There is a spiritual reality behind uh, uh, this universe. There's all that you can see with your eyes um, is not all that there is to it. And of course, the Bible recognizes not only God, eternal spirit, but that God has created other beings besides human beings and animals and plants and so forth, particularly angels. And that some of these angels rebelled against heaven and are even to today in rebellion against heaven. We call them demons. All right, that's, that's the assumption of this passage. By the way, if you're wondering, do people believe this? What, what percentage of people believe this? Um, uh, this is from Live Science. That uh, poll suggests that nearly 70% of Americans think angels are real. 70% of the majority of people do believe in angels. A 2007 Baylor Religion Survey found that 50% of Catholics, 81% of black Protestants, 66% of evangelical Protestants, and 10% of Jews reported having a personal experience with an angel. I think that's, I was surprised at how high that is. Uh, 20% of those who identified themselves as having no religion claim to have encountered an angel. So even those who are not religious still say they've encountered uh, angels. Now, it drops a bit when it comes to demons, because no one wants to think about what is evil, right? Um, 43% of Americans, compared to 70, um, polled believe that demons exist. Um, But 20%, around 20%, are unsure. So less than half of people would say there are no demons, um, and almost half says there are, and a bunch of people say they're not sure. The thing we see here, though, is that they absolutely, according to Jesus and according to the scriptures, exist, and yet Jesus has all power over them. It takes no work, no effort, no superstitious incantations for Jesus to encounter somebody who is spiritually tormented and heal them. By the way, very important the Bible does not equate physical or mental illness with demonic uh, possession. That's a mistake that we see in some sort of branches of Christianity, and I think it does a, it gives a bad name to Christians. Uh, some people say, well, somebody who has a mental illness, bipolarity, or paranoid schizophrenia, they have a demonic possession. Nothing in Scripture would indicate that. Uh, same thing with physical ailment, because someone has cancer, somebody has a heart disease or something, there's no, nothing in scripture would say that is because there is some type of demonic presence. What we do find in scripture is that oftentimes that if there is a demonic influence, it will torment a person through either physical, muteness here, or mental illness, seizures and other things that we see in scripture. It doesn't work the other way around where every single physical ailment or every single mental illness is therefore attributed to some demonic force. But yes, that does sometimes work as a manifestation. But what we see here is Jesus heals those who are tormented by spiritual realities. Now, I don't know where you're at and talk to different people. I've counseled many people over the years. If you ask me as a pastor, Pastor Rick, have you ever encountered someone that you think was possessed by a demonic force, I would say yes. 
but I do not know. Right? There should be a certain humility about it. I, I don't know for sure. We don't have insight. I don't have these magic glasses I can put on and say, there he is, there's the demon. <laughs> that doesn't work that way for me. Uh, have I encountered people who I think with either mental illness or maybe perhaps physical ailments that I do think is more than meets the eye, more than something physical? Yes, I think there have. I have. And I would just say, if that's someone, if you're here today and you're listening, you think, I feel like I'm being oppressed. I feel like there's something going on in my life beyond merely my flesh, <laughs> beyond merely my own sinful tendencies, or beyond my own temptations, beyond my own addictions and so forth, I feel like there's something oppressing my life, something that is just constantly at me. I want to encourage you, go to Jesus. Go to Jesus. <laughs> he has complete and absolute power over all things spiritual. The truth of the matter is, if you're wrong and it's not something spiritual, go to Jesus, right? Because <laughs> it's, it's not going to hurt you to go to Jesus. So if you're right, and there is something beyond the surface there, go to Jesus. It's still going to work out right. So either way, the advice is the same. Look to the one who can heal and can cleanse and who has the power over all things spiritual. In fact, that's where he goes next. Look at this next section, 20 to 23. Jesus defeats spiritual evil from the top down starting here in verse 20 but if it is so if it's not satan casting out satan in this divided kingdom but if instead it is by the finger of god that i cast out demons then the kingdom of god has come upon you what does he mean by the finger of god one commentator says it's a hebraism a way of speaking in hebrew that locates supremacy over the demonic not in the charms and incantations of popular exorcists but in the activity of jesus that term finger of god does appear in the old testament how did god bring about his law with the very finger of god writing it actually one great story that brings this out i think really well is you may remember moses um, who was calling upon pharaoh to let god's people go and God uses him to do a number of different miracles, right? And you may remember that when he starts off, he takes the, the staff, he throws it on the ground, it turns into a serpent, and the magicians of Egypt are able to do it as well. Um, now, did they use some type of trickery? You know, did they use some type of, you know, glass and casing on a snake and throw it down? I don't know how they did it. Or did they use some type of actual spiritual evil? We don't know. It doesn't actually go into that. They're able to do it a few times, actually. Even with the Nile, they're able to make the water turn red. Again, through trickery or what? We don't know. But eventually, it's actually only by the third plague. There's only, there's only ten plagues, so it's the third plague, the plague of the gnats, that the magicians tell Pharaoh, we cannot do this. Whatever he's doing, it's not trickery. <laughs> And whatever he's doing spiritually is beyond us. Exodus 8, 19, this is the finger of God. And Jesus is saying, if what you are seeing in my life, in my ministry, is absolute power and control over spiritual forces, this is the finger of God, then his kingdom has come upon you, his rule and his reign in this earth he says more verse 21 it gives this illustration of the strong man i love this illustration a strong man fully armed guards his own palace who's the strong man beelzebul satan 
right? The prince of demons. And he is strong and powerful and he's fully armed and he guards his own palace. Why? To keep his goods safe. Hate to tell you this, the goods are us, okay? His goods are just people that he is sort of, he's the god of this age, the ruler of this world. We are in rebellion and treachery against God. We belong to him, knowingly or unknowingly. But as he says here, verse 22, but when one stronger, Jesus himself, right? One stronger attacks him and does what? Overcomes him, overpowers him. He does what? He takes away his armor. (laughs) He leaves him naked, essentially. Strips him of his armor in which he trusted and then divides up his spoil. Takes anything he wants from him. That's what Jesus is saying he's doing. Uh, he He is taking human beings, like this man who was mute, rescuing him from the grips of Satan with ease, by the way, and then making him his very own. And we know the full picture. God doesn't treat us like spoil or like goods, but like sons and like daughters. We belong to him, and we become under his sovereign hand, yes, but his gracious love for his people. God has complete control. The Lord Jesus has complete control over all things spiritual. Don't fear him. Don't fear him, friends. That's my encouragement to you. Uh, You know how much time and energy and effort I spend dealing with demonic thoughts and demonic enemies and learning about demonology? Yes, demonology is a real thing, believe it or not. Almost none. (laughs) Because I want to spend my mind and my time thinking about the Lord who is infinitely great. Right? Fill your mind, fill your heart with the things of God. Uh, fill your heart with his word. Fill your mind with prayer. Set your mind on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Uh, this, there's a danger of becoming overly interested uh, about spiritual evil things. And I, I think that's a danger that leads nowhere good. Okay, uh, you may have heard, may have read the Crucible story of the Salem witch trials. They bring in this so-called expert uh, who comes in, and he's supposed to be this expert on demonology, and he's got all these books about incubus and succubus and all of these things that are extra biblical, by the way. And what does he do? He makes the situation even worse, right? Because what a good clergy should have done is pointed them to the Lord Jesus in His sovereign hand over what is good and honest and right. Jesus defeats spiritual evil by the gospel. Friends, you've heard the terminology that Jesus said, right? The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Now, interestingly enough, we think that that means that we're being attacked and sort of will be protected, right? When's the last time you saw a gate attack someone? (laughs) Gates don't attack. Uh, Gates defend, right? What Jesus is saying is not that hide away in your church and I'll protect you in your little fortress away from the world. His calling is to go forth and the gates of hell will not stop you. That the gospel frees people from sin, takes them away from the control and the power of the evil one and makes them the very spoils of God in which they become his children. And no force of hell will stop its advance. Satan is defeated. He is disarmed. He is bound, according to Matthew's parallel passage here, from deceiving the nations, Revelation 20, and let the gospel go forth and transform the world. 
uh, the end of the Great Commission, what does Jesus say? All authority in heaven has been given to me. Therefore, do what? Go make disciples of all the nations. Because now there is nothing that will stand against the power of the gospel. His death, his resurrection to free sinners. And friends, remember, that was you. That was me. I was the goods of the evil one until the stronger man came and said, give me back what is mine and took it from him and made me his own. Notice he says here, there is no neutrality. If you look at verse 23. Whoever is not with me is against me and whoever does not gather with me scatters. If you say, no, I'm not interested in God, I'm not interested in Jesus and that stuff, but I'm also not interested in Satan, what I think most people would say, right? I just sit sort of in the, the realm of neutrality. There is no neutrality. Sorry, you and I, we're just not powerful enough to sit there and say, yeah, Satan, you stay back there, Jesus, you stay back there, I'm going to stand on my own two feet. Not going to happen here. Turn to the Lord Jesus, trusting in the gospel, find freedom in him, and begin to live faithfully as sons and daughters in him come to this last section, this third section, which may be the most confusing and may have been the most frightening to hear, right? I remember reading this before and thinking, man, that's a terrifying passage. I don't know what it means. But actually, as you begin to explore it, it really comes to light. He says, verse 24, when an unclean spirit, an unclean spirit is a parallel term for a demon, when an unclean spirit has gone out of a person, uh, so been cast out of a person, right? Leaves that person. What does it do? It passes through waterless places seeking rest. No idea what that's all about, right? Other than that fact that the desert was seen as a spiritually evil place. That's why Jesus was tempted by Satan in the desert. You can imagine Israel is primarily desert. You die if you go spend too much time in the desert. But either way, Jesus describes it as going, traveling, whether he's speaking figuratively or literally, finds n finding none. What does it decide? I'm going to go back home. I'm going to go back to where I just came. Finds the house all swept, put in order, empty. And says, I'm going to go find seven demonic forces more evil than myself. We'll come back and we'll just have a party there. We'll all dwell there together and have utter and complete sort of, you know, control or torment of this person here, right? Um, what's this passage all about? Anyone a little frightened by this passage? I mean, let's be honest. That's kind of a scary sort of passage there. What is it all about? I think Jesus is referring to the sons of the Pharisees these so-called professional exorcists. So let's say in the mercy of God, they come and they pray and they are able to sort of do something spiritually in this person. What takes its place? What, what, what did they actually do? All they did was empty it out for a time being. The person hasn't changed. There's no difference. They haven't come into a relationship with their heavenly father. They haven't filled their life with the spirit of God. There's no, been no permanent change in their life, and so they find themselves in danger once again of the same thing happening or something even worse. You think of someone as an illustration who leaves an addiction that has controlled their life, but they don't fill it with anything else. They haven't come to the Lord. They haven't filled it with something new, something different, and so they go, what, six months and say, you know what, I'm going back, <laughs> and they end up back in the same addiction, the same temptation, the same sin. That's the idea here. What has taken its place? But in Jesus' ministry, what is the whole point here? He transforms us, gives us the spirit of Christ, the spirit of God himself who indwells us and protects us and makes us his own. You know, one of the good news is, there's good news and bad news for us here. 
Uh, the good news is our culture is not actually closed to spiritual things. Our culture is very open, as we just talked about, how many people actually do believe that there are spiritual forces at work in this world. And really, the truth of it is, most people believe there's a God. The, the naturalistic atheist is a rare person. I mean, there are some of them. I mean, even think of your own life. How many people do you know think there's no God and nothing more than the physical world and that's it? Very few. Most people have some type of religious belief, spiritual belief, maybe even if it's just sort of more generic um, they're not completely naturals. I was at uh, getting my oil changed in my car uh, a month or so ago, and I had a Christian book uh, commentary actually sitting on my dashboard, and the guy who was working there said, oh, who's reading that? And I said, I am, actually. I'm a pastor. It's for, for a sermon. And he said, oh, we can't be friends anymore, right? That's what he said. But he said it with kind of a smile. So we talked to him. I said, oh, okay, you don't like Christianity. What do you believe? He said, I'm more into the Druid religion. Um, I, I didn't know that Druidry was such a big deal today. Um, haven't met too many, uh, you know, druids walking around and they're, they're uh, doing their, their wicker man type stuff. Um, but I guess that's a thing nowadays, right? There's druids out there or people who hold to the ancient druid religion. But notice he didn't say, I don't believe in anything. The, the people tend to be spiritual. So that's the good thing. The good news is people tend to be open to spiritual things. The bad news is they're turning everywhere into places that are really no good. And in doing so, opening themselves up, in my opinion, to very dangerous things. Like the man who is cleansed, but nothing replaces it. Friends, I, I'm amazed to see sometimes Christians, and I'm not pointing the finger at anybody here, who follow Christ and still would go see a fortune teller. And still go check out astrology. And this is my sign, and this is how I determine my future and my destiny, and what are you doing? That's the other team, right? That's, that's, that's not who we believe. We believe in a sovereign God who loves us and holds the end, knows the end from the beginning and holds all things under his hand. Turn to him. And friends, again, we are filled with the Holy Spirit. I actually don't believe a Christian can be possessed by, some, uh, by a demon because you have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you. And where God dwells, nothing evil can dwell as well. Yes, I think there can be oppression and so forth, but if you belong to him, you're his. Fill your mind, fill your heart with the things of God and take great joy and rest in him. Jesus has all power over spiritual things. That's true of us individually. That's true of us as a church. If we pray for God's hand of protection upon us, it's true, um, friends, even in this culture that we live in we pray against spiritual evil and we trust that god is sovereign and at work as the gates of hell will not prevail against the gospel today is as i mentioned well tomorrow is i should say tomorrow is reformation day what is reformation day it's the day as i mentioned that martin luther nailed the 95 theses to the wall the wall at wittenberg and let me explain why that happened martin luther was a monk in the 1500s. Uh, he became a monk because he was studying to be a lawyer, but he was out in a thunderstorm and thought he was going to die. And so he made a vow to God that if God spares his life, he'll become a monk. Okay? And God spared his life, so he became a monk. While he was a monk, he struggled with guilt. He struggled with feeling, I'll never be good enough for God. That God's righteousness is so high 
His standard of what is good is so beyond me that I'll never be good enough for him. And he was crippled by this sense of unworthiness and under the judgment of God. In fact, he comes to a point in his life where he is so frustrated that he says, I don't love God, I hate God. Because he, all he felt was the judgment of God in his imperfection. He would go to his confessor, uh, von Staupitz, and would go to him and confess all of his sins. And uh, every day, because every day he felt like I sinned more, even in my thoughts and my actions, and I've not lived up to God's standard. And he went back to the point where his confessor, who was a pretty good man actually, um, was so frustrated with Luther, he said, don't come back to confession until you commit a real sin, <laughs> like patricide, okay? That's what he said. He said, go kill your father before you come back and tell me that you could be before you confess another sin, because you're so frustrated from hearing with Luther. But his confessor um, could see what his monk needed, and he said, I'm going to send you to Wittenberg, and you're going to study the Bible in its original language, is Greek and Hebrew. I'm going to send you back to the fountain, ad bountes, back to the source, to study and find again what God is really all about. Um, I don't know if he knew what was going to happen when he did that. Luther goes to Wittenberg, becomes a pastor as well, so he's constantly preaching and ministering to people. And he begins to study the Bible, and he begins to realize that God's righteousness is not what condemns us. His righteousness is a gift that he bestows upon us through the death of his son and his resurrection So that when God looks upon us, he sees not our sin, but his own son's righteousness. And Luther says it was as if the gates of heaven opened up to me. And I realized that I no longer was deserving of hell. But in the mercy of God, I am loved by him through what he has done for me. And he nails the 95 Theses because he sees the corruption in the medieval Catholic Church there to the Wittenberg window and begins a process that leads to the Reformation. And his most famous hymn, which we're not singing today, I think we sang it a couple weeks ago, was A Mighty Fortress, which I mentioned he took the tune from the bars, the German bars, but he took the words, of course, he wrote the words as a statement of the gospel. And as he writes, he writes this, as he sings and writes this song, he writes this. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. Is His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. And that word, of course, is Christ. Would you pray with me? Our gracious Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the life of Jesus. There's something about the Gospels in particular. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and reading about our Savior himself. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for revealing to us that you are sovereign over all things seen and unseen, all things physical and spiritual, and that you have rescued us from Satan's grasp and made us your very own. And as we read in Romans chapter 8, that if the Lord holds us, if the love of God is for us, 
who will be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not, along with him, Jesus, graciously give us all things? Help us to hold firm, stand firm in this gospel, rejoice in you, knowing that the church's one foundation is Jesus Christ our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen. 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 Would you stand?